Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I am Shiloh Logan. Today, we have a special guest with us. So Ben is on hiatus for a couple weeks because his family is moving, and so they are going from one house to another house, and they have a, a new beautiful home that they're moving into. And so right now we have, for the next few episodes, a guest, and that is Christopher Hurtado. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Shiloh. Christopher is a longtime friend of mine. We've been friends now for, uh, my goodness, it's been over 10 years. We met at BYU over 10 years ago. 2010. 2010, yeah, so that would yeah. have been 10 years ago. Yeah. That's crazy. So Christopher and I met at BYU when I was studying geography and global studies on one major, and you were studying Middle Eastern studies Arabic as another major, and then we both double majored in philosophy. And so that was the the major we had a couple classes together. I think we uh I think we originally met in a writing class, the philosophy of <laughs> philosophy of writing. <laughs> or philosophical writing. There it was. Oh, was it philosophical writing? Oh, yeah. I guess the yeah philosophical writing, not the philosophy of writing. That would that would have been a different class. It was the advanced writing class for philosophy majors. There you go. Over the last know, last ten years, we've developed a, a long term friendship. You were you're one of my main go tos when we talk about scriptures. When we're talking about new ideas, and and you read more than any ten people I know put together, which which presents always a fascinating discussion because you're always pulling in ideas and context and concepts that. Uh, for, I just, I, I have no context to, and then, you know, you kind of lead me through it a little bit and it opens up a brand new discussion that I had never even considered before. So that's always been highly valuable to me too. Well, I hope I can bring some value to this conversation. Well, good. So today we are going over Helaman one through six. We have now finished the war chapters and that has been, man, that's just been an incredible discussion. And especially in framing, going back a little bit and just framing the context of the war chapters and and catching everybody up, is that Alma has been this fascinating book. You know, the history of Alma and who and what Alma was from Alma 1 all the way through until the time that he leaves the land and he goes off on as if he's going to the land of Melik. And we've talked about it a lot. But just to recap is that we have this, this idea that the war chapters may be one of the very first things that a young Mormon, as a young military general, that he actually writes and puts together himself. And there's a lot of evidences for it, and I don't want to take the time for it right now. We kind of went into it a little bit in the last episode. But in a lot of ways, it looks as though he has this standard standalone text. And in the standalone text that he has, he he ends up talking about missionary work for the first half of the book of Alma. And he talks about Alma going to the Nephites. He talks about the sons of Mosiah going to the Lamanites. And then in this regard, he concludes the missionary portion of his discussion. And then in chapter 28 of Alma, 
he then he then says, well, you know, I'm basically done with the the missionary portion. Now we're going to start talking about the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites and then proceeds for the next 15 chapters to not talk about the wars. And so this is a really fascinating verse in Alma 28 verse 9 where he says, and this is the account of the wars and the contentions among the Nephites and the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites in the 15th year of the reign of the judges. And then the next chapter, we have Alma Soliloquy. Alma 30, we have Korahor. From Korahor, we get into the Zoramites. From the Zoramites, then we talk to Alma and his uh, Alma talking to his sons. And then at that point, we're kind of ready now to get into actually talking about the war chapter. So it seems to be that there's this kind of bridge from Mormon writing his way into the text, as if the, the war chapters were a standalone, and then he's kind of working his way into the text. And now we're here in Helaman, and it seems to be now that the war chapters have concluded, now we're going to kind of like move out of that text. And we're going to go into, so it, it, we're talking like two, two different stories of sandwich the war chapters. So we're going to get a different flavor, it shifts tones, Helaman is a different, a completely different book than the war chapters have been. He, you know, there's a tone change. And then we start talking not about external conflicts out in the war, out in different cities and military stratagems and things like that. But now we actually come down and we're talking about Nephite civilization again and from the, and what's going on in Zarahemla. So in chapter one, we have this story of Pahoran Jr. who takes over from his father. He becomes the chief judge. There's an election. And from this election, there's some dissension with brothers. And from that, we end up with another war. Zarahemla is taken over. Moroni Ha, the son of Moroni, ends up getting Zarahemla back. But after another conflict, in chapter three, we have a mass migration northward. And so there's a lot of Nephites in the land that end up going northward. In fact, many of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's go there as well. But in the end of chapter three, there is a huge benefit and a huge boon to the, a huge boom to the church. And so the church ends up having a massive influx, a lot of blessing there. And then as it always happens, there's a pride cycle and the pride cycle kicks over and around. But then now we have the Lamanites coming back again. Another war happens. The Lamanites end up, there's a lot of Nephite dissenters who go over to the Lamanites and they try to stir them up into anger against the Nephites, and the Lamanites just aren't having it. Until finally the Nephites come over, these dissenters come over a second time. Finally get the Lamanites all stirred up, the Lamanites come down, they have a major war, the Nephites lose more than half of their land, and then we have Moroniha trying to fight it back, so he's able to get exactly just about half of the Nephite land. So then in chapter 5, we have a very interesting repeat that we're going to talk about where Nephi follows the same pattern of his great-grandfather, Alma the Younger, because Nephi is also the chief judge of the land, and he's also the high priest of the church. And so he's going to follow a lot of patterns we're going to talk about in going out and being a missionary with his brother Lehi, their journeys into conversion, the effects of that conversion. And then in chapter six, we're going to kind of see the shift between the Nephites and the Lamanites, right? So now the Lamanites are going to be more righteous. The Nephites are going to be a little bit more wicked and how that all plays out. So that's our recap. That's our overview of Helaman and, and the reading chapters today. So let's get a little bit more into it. Here in Helaman chapter one, uh, Christopher, we, you had some interesting ideas here because we had Pahoran, we had Pianki, and we had Pakumini, and they're three brothers. And I brought up uh, when we were talking about it that 
uh, this phrase here in verse 4 of chapter 1, where it says, Now these were not all the sons of Pahorn, for he had many, but these are they who did contend for the judgment seat. Therefore, they did cause these three divisions among the people. And then you brought up something about some ancient literature that you've seen about brothers and seeking for the throne. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, what normally happens when someone takes the seat of power, usually the son of whoever was ruling before him, in antiquity, he would kill all of his male relatives, all his brothers, anyone who could be a contender for the for the seat of power. And so it's interesting that it's that it's mentioned here that there that there's this contention among brothers. And it's really interesting that there are a lot of other brothers that aren't contending for power. And that one of the reasons it's interesting that there's this contention for powers that we're supposed to be in a democratic system, but that doesn't look like it's really taken. It's still new. We forget that the war chapters are covering a very short period of time. Mormon spends a lot of time uh, covering them, but it's a short period of time since this reign of the judges has been instituted. How long is it? Yeah, we're only about 40 years into it. Yeah. And, and we don't have that many changes of power in terms of who's in the seat of power. And so when this comes up, there's the usual contention. And yet, in the end, and in the end, we have someone who the book of, of Helaman tells us is uh, going to rule by right. What does that mean? Is he the oldest? And yet he was elected by the voice of the people. It's interesting. It is interesting. So we have Pahoran, who is who gains the the vote. His brother Pianki is a little bit disturbed, and his other brother Pakumini is like, "All right, well, if you won, you won." So Pakumini falls in with with Pahoran, but Pianki comes along, and he's not having it. So he ends up rising up in well, he starts to rise up into rebellion. And in verse eight, it says, "And it came to pass that he was about to do this. Behold." He was taken and tried according to the voice of the people and condemned to death, for he had raised up in rebellion and sought to destroy the liberty of the people. Now, Christopher, I find this really fascinating because liberty is a very hot topic throughout all of the Book of Mormon. And it's a topic that I've loved to study over the years. And, you know, we have Captain Moroni in the title of liberty, and we have, you know, preserving the Nephites and the Lamanites, or we have preserving the Nephite way of life and their liberty. But also in Alma chapter 8, when the angel appears to Alma and tells Alma to go back to Ammonihah, it's because the people of Ammonihah sought to destroy the liberty of the people. And so all of Ammonihah was under the context of Alma restoring the liberty of the people. And it just it completely revolutionized the way that I read Ammonihah ever since I recognized that. But here, we have the Nephite way of being, in that someone challenged and tried to overthrow their liberty through this political mechanism, and he was condemned to death. Now, this never goes well. Whenever you have a person who rises up and tries to do his thing, and he becomes a political martyr, that never fares well. I mean, this is the same thing that happened with Nehor, right? And so whenever this happens, you're ultimately going to make basically a martyr out of him, and now you're going to have a bunch of followers who are going to revere this person and take that suffering, that sacrifice of their failed leader and of, and of the injustice that they think this leader has endured. And now they're going to expand and to grow upon it. And that's exactly what happens here. Because at that moment, it was Kishkeman and Kishkeman stands up and he comes over and he is a supporter of Pianki. And when he comes in, he kills, he kills Pahoran. 
And that's how he gets away. So now we have Kishkumen, who is who is now starting a new band of mercenaries and robbers, all based off this political martyrdom, which is absolutely fascinating. Just just the treatment. We often don't ask ourselves what the treatment and our social institutions and the way that we actually treat those in which we see as uh, political dissidents or those that we see as deserving death what the results of that's going to be in the in the social atmosphere. And the Book of Mormon has some interesting stories about that. But as far as Kishkeman is concerned, that's an interesting name. Now, Christopher, we didn't say this, but you are, man, he, one of the things that really surprised me early on in our friendship is when you let me know how many languages you knew, and you've only added to them over the years, it's about 12, right? You have about 12 languages fluently, semi-fluently under your belt, right? To varying degrees of fluency, yes. But as far as Kishkeman is concerned, one of the things that I know you always pull out is you, you always pull out literary and linguistic and structural nuances out of the text. And one of them is that you were reading about Kishkeman, and as we were talking before, about the origin of Kishkeman and Gidgadon, of, of Gadiatin, rather, and about how that can possibly add to how we are looking at what's going on. Can you tell us a little bit about those words and what they could their possible origins? Yeah, sure. First, I'd like to make a comment on what you were just saying about the dissidents. We don't know exactly what Payanki did, other than he was disputing the election. We have disputes in our elections. I'm not sure what degree of tolerance to dissidents was allowed. You know, I don't know exactly what he did, but if it was just dissidents, if it was just a dispute and, and that's not allowed, then we can end up with unintended consequences, as you've tried to bring out. So that is that is really interesting. When it comes to Kishkeman and Gadiantin and even Gidiani, well, when, when it comes to Kishkeman and Gadiantin, these both look like they're of Jaredite origin. These names look like they're of Jaredite origin. So as a matter of fact, there's even the chance, there's even the possibility here that, that Gadiantin isn't actually someone's name. It looks like, so first of all, Gadianton was spelled with two Ds in the original text of the Book of Mormon. And there's a root, there's a Hebrew root, and it's actually Strong's 1416 in Strong's in Hebrew. The root is GDD. And there's a, there's a word that comes from that root, Gedud, which is going to, which means it's a band of bandits. And so that's what these Gadianton robbers are. Yeah, that's what these Gadianton robbers are. And then the Yanton, we see Gadianton. There are other names that are Jaredite names that end like Gadianton. And so it looks like what Mormon is trying to tell us is that these are Jaredite-style bandits. These are bandits like the Jaredites had among them, meaning there are these secret organizations, which were the downfall of the Jaredite people. So if we're reading through the Book of Mormon for the first time, we don't know what Mormon knows. He knows about the Jaredites. And so it looks like he's alluding here to the Jaredites, and eventually we're going to read about the Jaredites and find out that those robbers, those bandits, those secret combinations were the cause of the downfall of that civilization, and and that's what's happening here too. You know, that raises a really good point, Christopher. Now, you and I have had a lot of discussions over the years about Scripture and about how, what Scripture is and, and how does Scripture become Scripture. And about how to read scripture. Do we read it just absolutely historically? Do we read it as an absolute fact? Is that is that the point of scripture? I know you and I have a lot of things to say about that, but as far as, you know, you brought up a really interesting point here because for as long as I've ever read the Book of Mormon, 
he just glazed over Kishkamin because that's the proper name of that guy. That's his that's his formal name. And Gadianton, that's his formal name. But now you're saying, and you're bringing up this idea that it's it could possibly not be his real name, that it's a placeholder for something else. How can we possibly re- reason with that? Yes, and as a matter of fact, we see that, first of all, that the band is not going to be called after the name of Kishkumen. It's going to be called after Gadianton, where again, we have this root that tells us that this could mean a band of bandits. And we see Mormon using this name generically, right? The, bad, the Gadianton robbers are going to continue to be, even if there is no Gadianton, if there ever was a Gadianton, in terms of a proper name. That's really interesting to me, especially as going over and how the text here is if from a historian's point of view with Mormon, he might even be looking at the text here and realizing he may have a proper name for who this is, for this who this character is. He may not, but uh, if if that's the case, yeah, it's like this really interesting clue into what kind of person this is and into giving someone a name that has something more to do with who they are and what they're doing than actually their their real proper name. I think that's a really interesting uh, real interesting possibility there. Yeah, this is what's called a metonym, which means it's a name or expression that's used as a substitute for something else which it's standing for. Gotcha. Well, that's real. I'm going to have to look into that. That's that's really fascinating. All right. So as we're moving on with chapter one, we have a dissenter from the Nephites. He ends up going down and trying to rile up the Lamanites. They end up coming in. And whereas the Lamanites had always attacked around the periphery, now they just march their army straight right down into the heart of the Nephite land. And they take over Zarahemla. They kill everybody they can possibly kill who's in the way. And then at that point, they think themselves pretty fantastic because Moroniha and Lehi, who had fought with Moroniha's father, with Moroni, they had fortified all the periphery of the land. And so (laughs) it seems like a really good military strategy. Just go strike at the heart, right? Just go in and take the heart right out from them. But what they didn't recognize is once they were successful in the battle is like, where do you go from there? Now, Now you have to go, now you've cut yourself off because you're surrounded now my Nephite forces all the way around. So they try to go from each place to, to one place to another. They end up in Bountiful. They take over as much as they can. But then Moroniha had discovered what was going on and he immediately sent recruitments over to Lehi. They ended up protecting the land of Bountiful and basically just, just came down around uh, Coriantum, Coriantumer and, and, and he, he died. It was just, it was a really fast Really fast story. And I think it's really funny that they just ended up throwing this really fast story and like, hey, listen, there was a guy named Coriantumer. He attacked us in the center and then we just surrounded him and killed him. <laughs> it's, it, it seems like it could have been one verse. That name has a common feature with Jaredite names too, with the I-A-N in it. That's just a common feature in, in Jaredite names too. Oh, interesting. I-A-N. In chapter two... In, now, we're going to go through this a little bit faster, too, because in Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, the the bulk of the discussion we're having today is really in 4, 5, and 6. So we're covering Chapter 2 and 1 through 3 pretty quick. But in getting into Chapter 2, we have Helaman now who becomes the the new chief judge because Coriantumer killed the old chief judge, and Pacumini's dead now. And so then Helaman is now sitting on the, ju- on the judgment seat, and Kishkumin, just like he killed the previous chief judge, Pahoran, 
he decides that he wants to kill Helaman now. So he devises a plan, but while they're devising the plan, the servant of Helaman overhears what's going on. He knows what, what signals to give to Kishkeman, and he ends up killing Kishkeman, and he's dead now. Then the servant runs to Helaman, tells everything, tells Helaman everything that just happened, and by the time Helaman is able to get together any kind of force to go out against the Gadiantans, Gadianton himself, if... Gadianton is, him, is himself, if that's his name. Or the man in which is called Gadianton. It's almost like the brother of Jared. The man in which is called Gadianton, you know, he all of a sudden hightails it. He's gone. And they take off. And so that is now really the beginning of the end of Kishkemen and the beginning of this Gadianton narrative, which we find out basically is the order and the way of doing things, which ends up destroying the Nephite civilization. So we're going to hear a lot about these, and in future discussions, we're going to talk a lot about the various particulars and the nuances of, of what made the Gadianton robbers the Gadianton robbers, because I think in a lot of ways, Christopher, over the years as I've talked about the Gadianton robbers and I've read about them, they they really do, do seem so different from us, because how many people do I know are a part of some oath-bound society to kill and rob and pillage just to get gain? And that they do all their works in secret. And and something has told me that this way of the Gadianton robbers existing, I think is a little bit probably more prolific than we think it is. And not just prolific in that there are people that I don't know. There's a lot of people that I don't know who end up having you know late night seances and doing this kind of thing for political intrigue. But that I think there's a way that society kind of enters into these narratives that we often don't express or explain and, and or even identify. So I, I think we're going to talk a little bit about that in, the, in the, probably a future episode, maybe even the next episode. But uh, going into chapter three, we have this huge migration northward. Finally, the Nephites are now starting to migrate northward. The anti-Nephite Lehi's, many of them go with them. So we see this huge, this huge migration of a lot of the anti-Nephite Lehi's leave. And we're told that we don't have a hundredth of the history of just that migration alone and where they went, what happened to them, how they did things. But then we get into this, this part where now Helaman is filling the judgment seat. The church has had this huge growth, this huge boom because of the kind of the peace and the, the relative peace that's happened. So now they're, the church is very prosperous and... It says in chapter 3, verse 27, And thus we see that the Lord is merciful unto all who will, who will in the sincerity of their hearts call upon his holy name. Yea, thus we see that the gate of heaven is open unto all, even to those who will call, believe in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Now, Christopher, this you and I have talked a lot about this kind of stuff, so this is where I really want to pick your brain on. It's in verses 29 and 30 of Helaman 3. But he says, Yea, thus we see... That whoever will lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across the everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked, and land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven, to sit down with, the, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and with all of our holy fathers, to go no more out. All right. Why are these, why do these verses stand out to me? So right here in, in verse 29, we see the, a few catchphrases that really stand out to me. And it says, whosoever may lay hold upon the word of God. 
Now that lay hold upon the word of God really speaks to me about the iron rod. So it really invokes this imagery of Lehi and Nephi's dream. To lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder the quick and cunning and snares of the wiles of the devil. Well, I've never looked at any of the story of Lehi and Nephi and ever once saw the word of God, this iron rod, which is like a handrail, ever dividing asunder anything. It never cut asunder, never divided asunder. But then I started to think about this and realized that the word of God leads to the tree of life. The same tree of life that existed in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were commanded that after they had transgressed and eaten the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that cherubim and a flaming sword was placed to guard the way to the tree of life. And I've often wondered, Christopher, is in this analogy of, of the, the garden myth, and when I talk about the garden myth, we, we, I need to talk, we need to talk a little bit about what myth is, right? But in the garden myth, and in Lehi's dream and Nephi's dream, and, that, and how we treat that as a myth, I've often wondered, where did cherubim go? In Lehi's dream. Like, what happened? Like, Lehi doesn't even mention cherubim anywhere. He just like, I found a rod. There was some mist of darkness. I took the rod all the way up to the tree. And I just started eating the, tr- the fruit of the tree. And it was good. And I'm like, where did cherubim go? Like, like, they're supposed to, he was supposed to be guarding the tree, making sure nobody was coming up there to it, right? And like, did he go on vacation? Is he, was he taking a break? Was he, did he just like be like, eh, it's good. And so he leaves. Like, what's going on there? And then we have a discussion of the sword. And man, you and I both have done a little bit of research on that. Why don't you, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Okay, there's something I wanted to interrupt a lot earlier. I'll just go ahead and say this, because for those who have a hard time keeping track of who's who in the Book of Mormon, this Helaman that takes the judgment seat is the son of Helaman, right? Right. And when Kishkoman comes in to kill Helaman, the servant of Helaman, seems to know the secret combinations. Kishkoman is making the signs or whatever he has to do to get past Helaman's servant to get to Helaman to kill him, and he's given the impression that he's going to get away with it, and then he gets betrayed, let's say betrayed by Helaman's servant, when he, because he thinks he's going, you know, he thinks he's dealing with someone who knows his signs and secret combinations and he's going to he's going to get in there and kill um helaman and then the other thing is thinking structurally about the text as a whole it looks like well it's it's obvious that moroni sorry mormon here is giving us an introduction to these gadianton robbers and then he's not going to talk about them for a while and they're going to come up again later in terms of lehi's dream and the tree of life which is this cosmic tree. They, the cosmic tree shows up in mythology in, in all the cultures uh, and all the religions of the world. It connects heaven and earth. It's usually at the center of the earth, which in, the, in Greek mythology is called the omphalos or the navel of the earth. It connects the earth and the heavens. And its roots go down and connect heaven, earth, and hell. And the Eastern Orthodox Christians thought that the cross was a, or that the tree was a prefiguration of the cross and that we could not partake of it until after Christ is crucified. And we say that Christ is hung on a tree when he's crucified, right? And in Luther's translation of the Bible, which we know Joseph Smith said was the best translation, Luther brings out that 
you're actually eating of the tree. He makes it a point to, to bring that out. And so you have Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, back to the presence of God. We know that the fruit of the tree of life is the love of God. And we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so that is Christ. You can see Christ hanging on that tree, that tree of life, as the Eastern Orthodox Christians understood it, or still do. And you can see that he's the way back to the presence of God. Now, as for the cherubim, that's plural. The cherubim are these angels that are closest to the throne of God. They are actually, they're closest to God. They're holding up his throne. They are, they have four faces, one of a man, one of an ox, one of a bird, and one of a lion. So you have this, this quaternity here, which is a very common theme, right? You have the four rivers coming out. You have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You have the, the four faces of the cherubim. There are thought to be eight cherubim. But if you think about the cherubim that are guarding the way to the tree, you'll see, for example, in Buddhist mythology, the Buddha becomes, in, he becomes the Buddha, which really just means the enlightened one sitting under the tree. So you can think of him symbolically as like the Christ. He has, he has become enlightened. He's become, he's come back into the presence of God, which how did we leave the presence of God? That's through duality. And so he's achieved unity or oneness. He's come out of duality into the presence of the reality of God in which I and the Father are one, says Jesus, and where we are to become one with him, likewise. And so you'll see in a Buddhist temple, there's the Buddha sitting under the, uh, the, the tree of enlightenment, the tree of life. You have the two threshold guardians, one with the open mouth, one with the closed mouth. The one with the open mouth represents the sound ah, which is from the beginning of the Dinavagari alphabet. And the other one, M, which is the end. So again, Alpha and Omega. And it's the same in the Islamic tradition. There's a hadith attributed to the Prophet of Islam, which says that he is like Ahmed without Mim, and like Arab without Ain, which means, again, no beginning, no end. If you bring the A and the Um together of the open and closed mouth, closed mouth threshold guardians, you get Aum which like the Alpha and Omega and the Ayn and the Mim represent everything. That's everything as one. The oneness of God is what's represented there. So the way back to the presence of God is it's to reverse out. The way back to God is to get out of duality and to, to begin to see things as they are, the reality of the oneness of God as uh, shows up in the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Elohim, Eloheina, Elohim Ached. I don't actually know Hebrew. My Hebrew, I sound like a Sephardic, um, like a Yemeni uh, when I speak Hebrew because, or when I quote Hebrew because I sound like an Arab speaking uh, Hebrew. But hero Israel, the Lord is our God, our God is one. The, the sword itself, which again, the, the, the rod is the word of God. The sword is also known as the word of God. And what does the sword do? The sword distinguishes. The sword cuts down ignorance and duality. Enlightenment is the opposite 
of the ignorance of duality. And it's a flaming sword, which we know the flame purifies. In alchemy, the flame is purifying the soul. Alchemy is not about turning base metals into gold. It's about purifying the soul so as to come into God's presence. There's a lot of symbolism here, and, and a lot of the symbols are universal in terms of human culture and, and religion. Yeah, there's so much that you just said to unpack there. I don't, I don't even, it's just all so good. I don't even know where to start. So I, to, to go back from the beginning, as far as what a myth is, for anybody who is listening who is maybe confused as what we're talking about with myth. So, and then, and then we're going to get into what Christopher said, because a myth in our modern usage of it, you know, if we think of like the, the show Mythbusters, or if we use, you know, that's just a myth. What we're saying is basically that's just a fictional story that never existed. That that has no bearing in truth. And so while that's maybe the the way that we use it, it's kind of a, a lay way that we use it. In the more formal sense, in as historians will use it, or as you know, psychology uses this a lot. Um, myth is a story that could be completely true, or it could be completely false, or it could be fifty fifty. It could be a half true, half false. And what it is, is it's a story with a moral meaning. And that, that's like what a fable is. It's a story with a moral meaning. But what makes a fable a myth, when you have a story and a moral meaning to it, that's a fable. But when you have a story and a meaning that you derive an identity from, and now you actually have an identity and part of how you see yourself and how you see others comes out about because of this story, now you're treating it as a myth. Now, it can be completely true, but that's not the point of myth. Myth doesn't care if the story's true or false. It's all about telling a story, having a moral meaning, and then all of a sudden having an identity from it. So for instance, if we take the first vision as, as an example, in, if we take it as complete face value where God the Father and Jesus Christ in their bodies appear to Joseph Smith, that's a fact. It happened, right? But if we then try to find a meaning from it and say, okay, well, what's the moral meaning from it? And it might be that God answers prayer, that God loves his children, that God is proactive in the lives of his children, and all of a sudden we start to derive moral meanings out of it. Now we're treating it more like a fable. doesn't mean it's a false story. It just means it's how you treat it as a literary telling. And then once you begin to say, now I tell this story that God appeared to Joseph Smith, it has all of these meanings and moralities that I have to it. And once we gain identity from that moment, such as I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I identify with that story, now that story gives me identity, now we're treating that moment as myth. Not because it's false, it's a completely true statement, but it's now we're gaining identity from it. So when we talk about the Garden of Eden myth, we're talking about a certain literary way of talking about an event that happened. The garden story could have happened exactly like it said it was. It could be an actual historical, tr tr completely true event, or it can be half and half. Maybe some of it, maybe it's, some of it's symbolic and some of it's not. Maybe something else. But what we're doing is we're gaining meaning from it and identity from it. So that's how we treat it. Whenever we stand in into the story and we and we partake of the story and we include ourselves into the story of the Garden of Eden, we're treating it as myth. So because of that. Alma 29 here, where it says that whosoever will lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder. 
Now, really fast is that, just like you said, Christopher, swords divide. They're always symbolic of things that divide, that that, uh, that, that take away and that carve away and that uh, cleave away. And fire is always symbolic of purity, of sanctification, of purifying, of making of making holy. And so now you have a, a fiery sword, you have something that divides asunder and makes pure. Well, in this analogy, the word of God as an iron rod is used in Lehi's dream, but the cherubim and a flaming sword is used in the garden myth as the cherubim's weapon. In reality, they're the same thing. They're just two different stories. So in Lehi's dream, the cherubim is symbolized by the rod of iron. In the Garden of Eden myth, the word the iron rod is symbolized by cherubim. The exact same meaning, two different ways of telling the myth in order to present the same meaning. So here in verse 29, it's absolutely fascinating because we've included two different myths and tellings, and we've combined them into one scripture. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm going to read it again now that we've been able to make that point. Whosoever will lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful. Now, whether or not that word of God is the sword or not that that word of God is the iron rod, which shall divide asunder the cunning and snares and the wiles of the devil. Now, remember in Lehi's dream, they're following the word of God and now they're not. Uh, and, and so now they're not uh, wandering into the mists of darkness, the temptations of the devil, but they're following the word of God. And also with the sword is dividing and sundering and is taking apart the natural man that is susceptible to the temptations of the adversary. And everything is leading to Christ. And not down the straight down the straight and narrow course by the everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked. That's very much talking about Lehi's dream. They all landing their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven. So this whole immortal soul is partaking of the tree of life, partaking of the love of God. So now we have the garden myth coming back again. So I just, I love these two verses because just like you talked about, Christopher, with when Adam and Eve were in a state of innocence and they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that created duality, good and evil, light and dark, good and bad, um, hot and cold. We learn everything by their opposites. So in this life, we have this context where it's been called duality, where we see everything in its relative nature to something else. And in going back to the presence of God, there is no duality in the tree in the tree of life. It's just the love of God. So symbolically, it's returning again to a state of unity. And, and you said it as like an at-one-ment with God, right? And this gets into our concepts of even, even how we talk about... now. I don't put any value in the word atonement being at one mint and, and thinking that as actually a, a semantic thing. Maybe you can clarify that, Christopher. I think it's a, a kind of a clever rhetorical way of being able to kind of train our mind to think about things. I don't think it has any actual historical semantical value, but that at one mint or the atonement being becoming at one with God and that whole process there. The, uh, the, the etymology of atonement does go back to unity. Right? That's that's the important point. Now, when I think of of myth, well, first of all, myth is just a fancy word for story. It's just it's just another way of saying story. It comes from the Greek mythos, which means story. And I don't think I don't think of myths as being either true or false. I think of them in terms of being either historical or non-historical, but always true. 
And I think it's important to realize that our thought as Westerners is Greco-Roman, and Hebrew thought is not the same as Greek thought. So in our way of thinking, when we ask a question like, was Adam an archetype or was he an actual man? Now, Adam just means human. Adam, the word just means human. The Bible tells us, bara Elohim Adam min ha'adama, which means that Elohim, God, created human out of humus. Humus is living soil. So Adam just means human, made out of, made out of living soil. For the Hebrews, they don't have this question. We would have to say he's a he's an, a literal person, and figuratively, you know, metaphorically, by analogy, we would say he's an archetype, or the other way around. If you ask uh, someone with Hebrew thought, is he a, an actual person, or is he an archetype? The answer is yes. Right. There isn't this problem, right? This comes from a Greek way of thinking, so there isn't that problem. And when we think about the Word of God in terms of the love of the love of God, the fruit of the the uh, tree being the love of God, the love of God meaning the Son that God gave because of His love, that Word of God is it's being the 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 word word as it occurs in the New Testament is a translation of the Greek logos. The logos is the Son of God. Logos means reason, word rational principle, even paragraph, sentence, it could be a rational argument. I like to think of the Christ as God's argument. And God's argument is, is not verbal. It's aesthetic. Here's my son. Follow him. And he gives an example. That's an aesthetic value, not a, you see what I mean? It's not, a, it's not a, an, arg, an argument. It's more like a poem. You can watch his you can watch his life and see how he lives it as a work of art that you can follow. And what does that look like? What does Jesus do? How does he live his life? He dies to the false self, the self that sees things in duality, and he returns to unity with the Father. The false self is crucified and he's resurrected to the true self the one that he says is one with the Father. That's the example he gives us. That's God's argument. That's his logos. That's his son. And that's the thing we don't want to follow, right? I, mean, I love the, the statement that I've heard a few times over the last year in some of the books that I've read is that everyone wants to follow Christ until they realize where he's walking to. Right? <laughs> right? Where did you hear that? That's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I've read it in a couple different books. But it's this idea that Christ, his whole ministry, everything that he was doing, ultimately led, was leading himself to Gethsemane and to the cross. And for anyone who takes upon themselves the name of Christ, well, Jesus of Nazareth, he ended up leading himself as the archetype of what Christ is. So anyone who is going to take upon themselves that name of Christ will be found doing the same thing that Christ did. Literally. And in doing that, and so as I've explained it before, is that we, you know, through the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, we find that those who take upon themselves the name of Christ are called to do for their fellow man through temporal and finite ways what Christ has done for humanity through infinite and eternal ways. You know, we all are called to do that. 
So when I see here in the end of in chapter three, and and I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because that does bring into context some things here. Is that the church began to be persecuted after it was after its big growth, and so in the last few verses here of chapter three, it says that in the fifty first year of the reign of the judges, that there was also peace, save it were the pride which began to enter into the church, not into the church of God, but into the hearts of the people who professed to belong to the church of God. And they were lifted up in pride, even to the persecution of many of their brethren. Now this was a great evil, which should cause more the more humble part of the people to suffer great persecutions and to wade through much affliction. You know, so this is that going to the cross that we were talking about. Nevertheless, they did fast and pray oft, and they did wax stronger and stronger in their humility and in their and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ, unto the filling of their souls with joy and consolation, yea, even to the purifying and the sanctifications of their hearts, which sanctification come because of their yielding their hearts unto God. There it is. There it is, right? It's that release. It's the surrender. There it is, right? You you don't want to follow Jesus to the cross. You don't want to crucify the false self. But that cross, that death, that's the tree of life. That's not the end, it's the beginning. And it's and it's a path from illusion, from the illusion of of, of duality, where we otherize others, where we think that there are others, that they're somehow different or separate from us, when we're all one, or at least if we want to be gods, we must be one. If you're not one, you're not mine. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the things that as Latter-day Saints, because our culture has so far abandoned the symbolism of the cross, that we have so far polluted the entire symbolism behind it as the tree of life. Because, I mean, so far that we call it the symbol of his death, right? I mean, that that's the whole thing is that we have labeled the cross the symbol of his death. You know, and so in, in church culture... We say, well, we want to focus on the life of Christ through the life of the saints and through and through let the life of the saints be the ones that magnify the life of Christ. And we don't want to pay attention to the symbol of his death. Well, that's that's a non sequitur. That doesn't follow. It's and, and that's a straw man because that's not even what the cross represents. You know, for us to say, well, you know, if my brother in law would have been, you know, if my brother would have been shot by a gun, I don't want to have a, a symbol of a gun hanging around my neck. I'm like, well, you obviously, you don't get the symbolism. You haven't studied the symbolism because the tree, the cross is a symbol of the tree of life. And that's what it's always been to those that wear it. It's the symbol of life. And that's where that goes. And we've really lost that in uh, culturally in our, in our Mormon faith. Moving into chapter four, we see that Nephi dissenters happen again and they go to the Lamanites and the Lamanites aren't having the another war. They don't want another war, but the Nephite dissenters persist. And so they persist a second time. Now the Lamanites are like, all right. And they come in and they just take over. There's so many more Lamanites than Nephites. Don't want to get into a discussion about speculating about why that's the case, but there's so many more Lamanites than Nephites. They take over. And I really wish these reasons for why they go to war and why the Nephites lost would have been included in the war chapters, which they are in a few kind of places, but not really like they are here, because really from verses in chapter four, verse 11 through 13, we really get a flavor for why the Nephites believe that war happens. 
because that they believe they lead themselves into war. War is not the state of being of a righteous people. War is the consequences of wicked people. And we've gone over that in the previous episodes. But just read that. I'm going to read this here real fast. Verse 11 and 12 and 13. Now this great loss of the Nephites and the great slaughter from which was among them would not have happened had it not been for their wickedness and their abomination which was among them. Yea, and it was among all those who professed to belong to the church of God. Wow. That's quite the indictment. And it was because of the pride of their hearts, because of their exceeding riches, yea, and it was because of their oppression to the poor, withholding their food from the hungry, withholding their clothing from the naked, smiting their humble brethren upon the cheek, making a mock of that which was sacred, denying the spirit of prophecy and of revelation, murdering, plundering, lying, stealing, committing adultery, rising up in great contentions and deserting away from the land of Nephi among the Lamanites. And because of all of their great wickedness and their boastings and their own strength, they were left to their own strength and they did not prosper, but were afflicted and smitten and driven before the Lamanites until they had lost possession of almost half of all their lands. Wow. You know, this is, this is supposedly a people who not just a few years before had had such a huge growth in the church. And so that's what we've discussed in previous podcasts in different episodes is just how fast this pride cycle happens. And it, since it happens so fast and it swings so widely, I always have to wonder how deep was the conversion to begin with? You know, how deep was it? Sure, they can, you know, they can come into the and be grateful for God and grateful for this. But how deep was that conversion really to begin with? And I don't know. And, and then I have to ask myself, am I any different? <laughs> I think that's the ultimate question. Well, you know, it's I, I've been remarkably impressed by the a reading that I've given of uh, Jesus in the Last Supper, when he says, "Surely one of you is about to betray me." And I have I've had a powerful moment with this uh, this particular passage of scripture, in visualizing all of one by one the apostles coming to Christ and asking, "Lord, is it I?" And just the humility and of the emptying and of the acceptance of them loving God as much as they do, them loving Jesus as much as they they do, them having the testimony as much as they have, them having the witness, the companionship, the love, the respect, the admiration, everything for Jesus Christ. And then for him to say, one of you is about to betray me. And for them to be so humble as to say, you know what, it might be me. I can't see a possibility that it could be me, but it might be me. And they go to the Lord and they say, is it I? That right there, that question for me has really struck me. So when I think about the pride cycle and when I think about and I read these, these passages of scripture, inevitably and always, I'm always asking, Lord, is this me? And, inev- <laughs> and inevitably the answer is always, yep. <laughs> and then I have to grapple with that. I would I would like to say something about verse 12. You know, the Nephites had turned their back on the poor. Pure religion means feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. The Nephites do not have pure religion. They're not feeding the hungry. They're not clothing the naked. They're actually smiting them on the cheek. I don't know what that means. They're smiting the poor on the cheek. You know, I don't know. I've thought about this a lot, you know, because this is the analogy that's given by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, right? If someone right. smite you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. 
And I'm wondering, in his day and age, how many people are just walking around slapping people on the cheek? <laughs> like, is that a cultural thing that was more that was more in vogue in their day, or is this really just a symbolism of an of an insult, something that would come along and they were you know fist fighting or they were fighting it out? Because quite frankly, I look at the church today, and I was like, wow, look at how righteous we are. Because none of us, you know, we're not, you know, maybe the pride of our hearts, sure. Maybe, you know, some of us are rich, but we come to church and and I don't know anybody who's really pompous with their wealth and who really flaunts their wealth. You know, sure, you know, you hear stories of, of higher end wards, you know, or more financially stable wards who, you know, you keep up with the Joneses and you have that kind of thing. But those are always kind of talked about as like sideways, you know, sideways conversations when you're kind of laughing at things. I you know, but the oppression of the poor, who who's actively going out and oppressing the poor? Who's actively going out and withholding their food from the hungry? Now, I've had conversations about communities and how they wanted to deal with the homeless. And I was always very surprised by the lack of empathy and the fear of being deceived by false panhandlers and how the cities usually just wanted to sweep the homeless away, put them in a different place can't panhandle, you can't have signs out, don't give to the poor, donate to institutions. And this isn't meant, I'm not meant to get into that. But that's the only thing I can really think about here. So when I've read these before, I was like, you know what, how are we supposed to take this to really apply this to ourselves? And, and, and I don't have a lot of good answers to it. It occurs to me that being smitten on the cheek is like saying slapped in the face. A slap in the face is a euphemism, if we can call it that, for an insult. They're insulting the poor, maybe. I do have to say, I myself was quite shocked when I learned of the plight of the homeless in Salt Lake City as I was teaching at Salt Lake Community College, you know, living in in Happy Valley and Utah Valley, where I wasn't living in Salt Lake Valley. And when I went to Salt Lake Valley and saw what that looked like, I was quite shocked, really. And I did what I could uh, in the time I was there to do my part one-on-one with some of the people that I met on the streets walking to and from buses or trains uh, to teach downtown in Salt Lake. Yeah, it's such a difficult situation. I, I think we should probably have just a complete discussion. I, we, you know, we, could, we could have an entire podcast just on that situation alone for how complicated it really, <laughs> really is. It is. And I think, you know, I, I don't have an answer and I'm, I'm not judging. I can't judge. Those, I don't even know who they are, who are dealing or not dealing with it the way they're dealing or not dealing with it. What I do know is that we can each do our own part. And that's, that's where I went with it. I said, here's someone coming face to face with someone every day who's cold, who needs a blanket. His blanket was stolen. I bring him another one. If that one's stolen, I bring him another one. That's all I can do. Yeah. I think ultimately that's the good point too, is just, can we live without judgment in our heart for how anybody else does it differently than us? So long as can we evaluate within ourselves that we are in fact doing something about it. Amen. So Christopher, chapter five here is really intense for me. And I say that because it's like Alma in his conversion story to becoming a missionary and the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and a few of those stories all wrapped up into one chapter. (laughs) 
it's it's just this the, the most condensed version of the entire book of Alma for me <laughs> that I was I've ever been able to I've I've seen anywhere else in the Book of Mormon. And what I mean by that is finally we have Nephi who is now becoming the now Nephi is the chief judge. Helaman his father is is no longer has died. Now Nephi is now the new chief judge. Um after after Sizorim, I'm sorry, after Sizorim is has been has been killed and is gone. Now Nephi is the new chief judge. And it says in verse two that the laws and their governments were established by the voice of the people had basically become corrupted and that the people wouldn't live by them anyway. You know, and what is it the Tacitus says? Something to the effect of the more corrupt the people, the more numerous the laws. That's right. And it says here that they become a stiff necked people, that they couldn't be governed by either law or justice, uh, save word of their own destruction. And so Nephi looks out over his people and he's now he's in the exact same situation that Alma was in way back in the day when his great grandfather was both the chief judge and the high priest of the church. He sees all these things going on. And if it was American society today, we'd be like, awesome, let's pass some more legislation. Let's get some new laws out there. Let's start following the old laws that we had. Let's get some more enforcement agencies out there. Let's really crack down on this. Let's build a wall. Let's separate us from them. Let's put these people in jail. Let's clean up the streets. Let's make more laws illegal and start cracking down on enforcement on it. Let's start getting some money coming in from uh, different revenues and different sources. And that's how we handle it in America today, right? But that's not how these men handled it. These men did something completely different. Alma and Nephi both give up the judgment seat. They both give up the political altogether. And it says here in chapter 5, verse 1, And it came to pass that in the same year Nephi delivered up the judgment seat to a man whose name was Sezorim. And it came to pass that Nephi became weary because of the iniquity of the people, and he yielded up the judgment seat and took it upon him to preach the word of God all the remainder of his days, and his brother Lehi also all the remainder of his days. For they remembered the words of their father, which their father Helaman spake unto them, saying, and then just goes down this whole list. Basically, it says to keep the commandments, to remember their fathers. Now, this is this is going way back to Alma, because that's Alma the Younger's big thing, is remember our fathers. Lee, Helaman gave Nephi and Lehi their names specifically to remember their fathers, to do good, to lay up treasures in heaven, to re remain consistent and to always apply the atonement of Jesus Christ, to remember that the Lord is going to have a reckoning with his people, and then also to remember, and I thought this was really fascinating, that to remember that angels are sent to declare glad tidings. And I think that was a really fascinating thing to be able to bring up and to bring out because whenever I see angels coming to visit, most of the time they, they're always telling people not to fear anymore, right? It's like, fear not. Don't be afraid. I, have, I give you glad tidings. So whenever these messengers come, people are afraid. And they're always saying, hey, don't be afraid. Here are some glad tidings. And then finally here in verse 12, the one of the most famous verses of all the Book of Mormon, one of the most quoted in conference. And now my sons, remember 
Remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwinds, yea, and when all his hail and mighty storm and shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe, because of the rock upon which you are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation wherein if men build, they cannot fall. Right? So here we are with this, these, these masterful principles. So Nephi and Lehi go out and they become missionaries. And they just, it, it just, it's so reflective of, of everything that Alma went through, everything that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's went through, everything that the sons of Mosiah went through. Yeah, once again, thinking about the structure of the text, this isn't accidental, right? Mormon is showing us, he gave us the war chapters. He has the narrative about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and, and Amalekiah, right? before the war chapters. He has this transition of 15 chapters into the war chapters. He's now transitioning out of that here in, in Helaman. And he wants to show us the parallels. He wants to show us what works and what doesn't work. And there's an example we can see, for example, between, there may even be a parallel between the kingmen that Moroni had to deal with and those, that faction that was uh, in dissension um, uh, when one of Pahoran's sons, when they wanted one of Pahoran's sons to be elected and he wasn't elected, another one was, and th that, that guy was put to death and Moroni dealt with the kingmen by force. And so you can see a parallel there. Is there a way to, is there a nonviolent way to deal with dissension? We have an issue in our society today where it's a very similar problem, right? We, we have a polarized society where if someone has a dissenting voice, something to say that's other than our way of looking at things, then other than is just bad and wrong. That's not acceptable. That has to be dealt with by violent communication, maybe even by violence if people were allowed. I don't know what they would do you see some pretty charged narratives, right? And you see, and you see people face to face on the streets in serious contention and their stances are firm and they're, it's like, it's, it's just a, an explosion waiting to happen. It's like a, it's like a, a powder keg ready to blow at the drop of a hat. So with, I was telling you earlier in the week when we were I was with you while you were taking care of a pest control route about the, the nonviolent biodynamic way of dealing with pests, where I went to a seminar, several day seminar at a biodynamic farm in California, in Colorado, and they have a way of dealing with pests. And I say pests, that's an otherizing term, right? To say that there's a pest means somehow it doesn't belong. And so they talk to their neighbors and the neighbors spray and they ask the neighbors, have you taken care of your pest problem? Yes, we have. We've sprayed. But that doesn't really solve the problem any more than Moroni dealing with the kingmen by force solves the problem because they just come back. The kingmen come back and the pests come back. The nonviolent way, the biodynamic way, is to think in terms of how do we subsume this so-called pest? How do we restore a balance to all things, a oneness? And so what they do is they introduce something, 
an, a counterpart, let's say, of nature that's going to restore the balance in that ecosystem such that what was thought of as a pest is no longer a pest. And so a balance is restored in nature and there's no need for violence. And so the question is, can we deal with these issues not by force as Moroni did or as the as was done with the the dissenters that were the followers of one of the sons, the son of Pahoran that wasn't elected. But can we somehow communicate nonviolently? And it really just comes down to not otherizing, right? That's that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I love Richard Rohr's statement where he talks about the difference between unity and uniformity. And that for most religion, that the concept of unity is actually played out in uniformity. We want everything to look the same. We want to have a general look. We want to have a general feel about everything. But real unity is not uniformity. Real unity is loving sufficiently to allow other people to do it differently than us. Right. So there's a place for dissension. It exactly fits. right. There, there's a place for dissension and there's a place for people to d- disagree with what you're talking about and to and for you to love them so much that that is possible. Because that's what I mean, what's what Jesus Christ says is he if you're not one, you're not mine. But he also talks about contention. He's like there need, doesn't need to be contention basically in disagreement. You can disagree and not have contention and still be one. Yes. Yeah. I like that a lot. And I think in a lot of ways, so like that brings it back, right, to what you said at the very beginning of the sons of Pahoran who were vying for the judgment seat. And politics, I think, is one of those things that we can always look at to realize just how vitriol that becomes when we don't allow dissenting voices. And not just that we don't allow it like, you know, with American democracy or the American way of voting. You know, we'll allow the Democrats or we'll allow the Republicans to speak. But the fact is, is you're not really allowing anyone. You're not loving the other side to do it differently than you. You look at the other side as dangerous. You, you know, we otherize the other side all the time because they're the dangerous ones. They're the ones that are doing it wrong. Right. And so it's, yeah, it, it, this is a hard concept. This is, this is a, a concept that it will take a long time to get into because at its surface, we want to easily reject this message. Because we feel that we have the truth on our side and that if we love the other person to do it differently than us, we've already otherized the person as being evil. And so we're not rejecting the other person. We're rejecting the evil within the person. And so us, and just kind of by extension, we're rejecting the person, but not really rejecting the person, just the evil in the person. And so it becomes like this really bizarre tautology that is self-justifying our othering of the other person because we always fall back on I'm not uh, I'm not against the person I'm against what the the evil that they're doing right yeah I get it we can't we can't as a society through the American narratives that we're given through this going back to dualism we can't escape this dualistic right and wrong red and blue conservative liberal dualities that exist. We always have to be in duality. And the minute we always know we're in duality, man, we know we're eating the fruit of the wrong tree. I'm reminded of your t-shirt that says, who would Jesus bomb? (laughs) 
Yeah, that gets a lot of really strange looks. I've had a lot of people. So I do. I have a T-shirt. Who would Jesus bomb? And man, I wear that out. And uh, yeah, people always give me strange looks. Sometimes I'll go out to dinner with it on, and people are like, oh, I, I don't, I don't know. Who would Jesus bomb? I'm like, I don't know either. But you know, a lot of the times we go bomb people for Jesus, and and <laughs> and it confuses a lot of people. Yeah. Going back to uh, Helaman here. Nephi and Lehi get put in jail. And well, first off, what happens is in Zarahemla, they go out to they go out because we have to realize that the Lamanites are now in possession of Zarahemla. And they go out and they start preaching the word, and they taught with such power and authority that says in verse 17, they did preach with such power in so much that they did confound many of the dissenters who had gone over from the Nephites. <laughs> Bam, right there. Political problems, social problems, things that you would never think that a missionary would ever be able to solve. But they went over because of their fasting and prayer and their preparation, and they went over there and they pro- they preached with such great power and authority, they did confound the dissenters who had gone over to the Nephites. The word of God had a political effect. And it came forth that they did confess their sins and were baptized into repentance and immediately returned to the Nephites and endeavored to repair unto them the wrongs that they had done. And Nephi and Lehi did preach unto the Lamanites with such great power and authority, for they had power and authority given unto them that they might speak. And they also had that they might given what they might speak unto them. Therefore, they did speak with the great admonishment to the Lamanites to the convincing them insomuch that there were eight thousand of the Lamanites who were in the land of Zarahemla and round about baptized unto repentance and were convinced of the wickedness of the traditions of their fathers. Wow. They accomplished there what everything in the war chapters had failed to do. Yeah. And yet they still don't let go of their, their otherizing ethnocentric way of talking about the Lamanites. Yeah, well, there's that, and we're going to get into chapter six because this is this. Is, you're right. This is going to get really interesting because Lehi and Nephi then leave Zarahemla, and they march over to the land of Nephi, where they're put in prison. Then, and this is where they are starved for several days, and they're about ready to be killed. And the guards come in to kill him, and this is where Nephi and Lehi then are surrounded by fire, and then darkness surrounds the guards. And then there is this voice that comes that shakes the prison. And it says, Repent ye, repent ye, and seek no more to destroy my servants whom I have sent unto you to declare the glad tidings. And it came to pass that when they had heard this voice, behold, that it was not a voice of thunder, neither was it a voice of great tumultuous noise, but it was a still voice, a perfect mildness, if it had been a whisper, and it did pierce them to the very soul. And behold, the voice came again, Repent ye, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And seek no more to destroy thy, my servants. And then it came to pass that the earth to tremble again. Now, see, Christopher, what comes to me every time I see the kingdom of heaven is to realize that the law of Moses only ever brings us out to the outer outskirts of the kingdom of heaven, to, to the walls, as it were. Now, I don't ever view the kingdom of heaven as having walls, but the analogy is, is that you come to the, the, the walls of the kingdom of heaven and you, you gain no entrance in. And that's what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount, the very first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Basically meaning poor in spirit, as we've talked about a lot, is this 
emptying. It's the emptying of all of your old self. Symbolically, baptism is the symbolism of being poor in spirit. It's the death of the old. Now, we often talk about culturally how like baptism is a is a cleansing or is a washing away. And that's a really bad way to look at it historically and theologically. Baptism is not some kind of spiritual bleach water where you go down into the and you come back up and you're and you're clean and white. All right? That that's not it at all. Baptism is the symbolism you go down into water, which is symbolic of chaos, death, destruction, oblivion. That's what water is symbolic of. The old you is gone. And what comes out is a brand new person. It's the same imagery for what porn spirit is. It's the death of the old and a complete emptying of the spirit out into nothingness. And that's the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are thou because now the kingdom of heaven, because as you come into the kingdom of heaven, you've left everything that was not the kingdom of heaven outside. All of the natural man, all of your identities, your opinions, your expectations, everything that was is gone. It's dead. And now you're in the kingdom of heaven. So when I hear this voice and it says that the kingdom of heaven is soon at hand, that's what comes to me in that, is just this beautiful, comforting, powerful, declarative voice of just saying the kingdom of heaven is soon here. You know, Shiloh, it's funny that you should mention that you don't think of, you said heaven as having walls, right? You don't think of heaven as having walls. I didn't mention this earlier, but those those threshold guardians, that pair of opposites, God lives between them, as we read in Psalms 80, verse 1. Those cherubim surround the throne of God. He He's at the center of them, or they're around him. They're close to him. And if we want to get close to him, we have to get past those cherubim, past those threshold guardians. And they're actually at the gate of the garden, which is a walled garden. That's what paradise means. Paradise means a walled garden. Eden means a well-watered place. We know that there's a fountain and that there are four rivers that go out of uh, paradise, that go out of Eden. So in a sense, it is walled, right? The kingdom of heaven, you you have to be able to get past those guardians. You have to get past duality back into unity to get back into the presence of God. And the only way to do that is through Christ, through the word of God, to get back to the tree, to eat of the fruit of the tree, which is the love of God, which is the son of God, which is the way, the truth, and the life. Right here, when we have the voice coming and talking with the guards, you have one Nephite who was a defector. His name is Aminadab. And he sees what's going on because he sees Lehi and Nephi looking up in the heavens talking. No, everybody else can see this and like, we don't know what's going on. And Aminadab says, you must repent and cry into the voice, even until you shall have faith in Christ, who was taught unto you by Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom. And when you do this, the cloud of darkness will be removed from overshadowing you. You know, I, I look at this, I look at this darkness almost exactly like I do the mist of darkness again in the Lehi-Nephi dream. Mm. And I don't think it's any coincidence that we have Lehi-Nephi here again, talking about symbolisms of the Lehi-Nephi dream. But here we have this whole mist of darkness. If you want to get out from the mist of darkness, you know, Alma the Younger, when he's going through his repentance process in Alma 36, he's in his own wicked point of view. 
where he looks as though there's a transactional relationship with God, there's a transactional relationship with the universe, and then it's only when he just cries out with the idea of God, where all of a sudden, just he's brought into the presence of God and everything, and all of his pain is gone. Through nothing of his own other than surrender. He just surrendered. And it was okay. And we see the same thing happening here. Just pray until you have enough faith and the darkness and the mist will be removed. Just call upon the name of God. This is like Moses and the, and the serpent right here. Just look and be healed. And it came to pass that they all did begin to cry with the voice of him who had shaken the earth. Yea, and they did cry even until the cloud of darkness was dispersed. And it came to pass that when, the when they cast their eyes about and saw that the cloud of darkness was dispersed from overshadowing them, behold, they saw that they were encircled about, yea, every soul by a pillar of fire. And Nephi and Lehi were in the midst of them, yea, and they were encircled about, yea, as if it were the midst of a flaming fire, yet it did not harm them, neither did it take hold upon the walls of the prison. And they were filled with joy, which is unspeakable and full of glory." And behold, the Holy Spirit of God did come down from heaven and did enter into the hearts, and they were filled as if with fire, and they could speak forth marvelous words. And it came to pass that they, were, they came a voice in them, and a pleasant voice, as if it were a whisper, saying, Peace, peace be unto you, because of your faith in my well-beloved, who was from the foundation of the world. And that's the voice of discernment. That's the flaming sword that distinguishes between truth and between error. And thinking of the structure of the text again, Mormon here is showing us parallels between the sons of Alma, who were missionaries who went to prison, and Nephi and Lehi, the sons of Helaman, the son of Helaman, who are in prison as missionaries. And of course, in the, in the fire, you have parallels with Abinadi and with Shadrach, Meshach, and, uh, Meshach and Abednego. And that fire again, the voice out of the fire, that's, we can think back to Moses, right? The burning bush. That's the presence of God. Yeah, it's all there. That's why I love chapter five so much. It's, it's all there. They all come out. They are all converted. It's the father speaking, which I love it because we don't hear a lot from the father. This is specifically from the father. And then the conversion was so powerful from these few hundred that were converted that it spreads out and the and the entire Lamanite people become converted. And it says in verse 51 to conclude chapter 5, And as many as were convinced did lay down their weapons of war and also their hatred and their traditions of their fathers. I just, it's, it's the anti-Nephi-Lehites all over again. And it came to pass that they did yield unto the Nephites their lands of possession. End of chapter. <laughs> See, this, is, this for me is where the war chapters end. For me, the war chapters end in the end of Helaman 5. They begin in Alma 28 that we began this, this episode with, and they end here in the end of chapter 5, because this is the bookend for me. This is where we see everything that missionary work did before, and this is where we see how missionary work bookended the back end of the war chapters, because here we have the anti-Nephi-Lehi's before, we have the exact same thing after the war chapters. And we see that the Nephites could gain all of that war, all of the 20 years of war with Captain Moroni, all of the 10 plus years here with Moroni Ha. They couldn't get their lands back. They fought for it. They finally gave up. Moroni Ha's not going back. And all of a sudden, Nephi and Lehi say, wait a minute, you guys. 
We know how to do this. And out they went as missionaries, 8,000 people in Zarahemla. They went out, and then all of a sudden, this moment here in chapter 5, just is the perfect nonviolent solution for all of the societal ills. You go out, you put in the work, you pay the price, you become a conduit of God, and just look what happens. And the Lamanites gave back the land, everything that they couldn't get through conquest, the military conquest, no matter how many prayers they said, no matter how righteous they tried to be, no matter what the war narrative was, forget about it. They sent two missionaries in, converted the Lamanite nation, and the Lamanite nation just handed it back. Oh, I love it. That's <laughs> Absolutely love it. That's the power of God. The iron rod is the word of God. The, the rod of iron, the scepter, is a symbol of the king, as is the sword. And we've already identified the one as the other and vice versa. And what does the king do? He sends his word. His scepter, his, his, his word, his son, and the gospel, the good news of his son, of Jesus Christ, is the solution. It's the only solution. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, Shiloh, about where this where the story begins and ends. And I know that the chapter the chapters didn't end in the same place in the original text of the Book of Mormon as they do now. And that may or may not be relevant here, but the point is you have a transition into the war chapters from the point in which Alma says he's going to go into into the wars. 15 chapters before he does, and you have a transition out of that narrative into a, another narrative that we're seeing here. And I'm excited about where this is going. Now, I think the war chapters ends in chapter five. However, it, the come follow me lesson for this week only ends in chapter six. So we got one more chapter to go through. That's right. <laughs> but in chapter six, what we have going on here is now the Lamanites are the righteous people. They've been so rock solid converted. And when they're converted, we know that they're really convert like like something sinks down deep inside of them and this is where for the first time in the book of mormon narrative all of the walls break down between the nephites and the lamanites where now there is how they had free intercourse be back and forth between each other so it says in verse 8 chapter 6 verse 8 and it came to pass the lamanites had also go whithersoever they would whether among the lamanites or among the nephites and thus they did they did have free intercourse one with another to buy and to sell to get gain, all according to their desire. And so this righteousness, they, they even started going down and being missionaries to the Nephites. So the Lamanites were the ones that were carrying the message of the church forward. And then the church starts to build up. They had had a moment of prosperity. Then the Nephites ended up becoming too rich too fast. The same thing happens again. And it says that the Lamanites found that the Gadianton robbers had now existed in their area. They were sad about it. This is verse 20. By verse 21, we have that Satan did stir up the hearts of the more part of the Nephites, that they did unite with the band of robbers and did enter into covenants with their oaths, that they would protect and preserve each other without difficult circumstances, that they should be replaced and they should not suffer for their numbers. They would not suffer for their murderers and for their plunderings and for their stealings. And so now all of a sudden, we have this new narrative come up. Now, I was thinking about bringing in the Cain narrative. I think I'm going to talk about it in a different episode about how powerful that is, but it brings up Cain in verse 27. It brings up the Tower of Babel in verse 28 and making comparisons between the two. 
But by the end of chapter 6, we see the growth now of the Gadianton robbers among the Nephite civilization and among the Nephite portion of the land. But the Lamanites, they see it coming into their land because, you know, for the first time we have this free exchange and, and free freedom to travel wherever you're going. And it says that they come in and whenever you see, and this is one of the things that I, w- I was taught while teaching seminary um, to look for, but you look for principles and principles in the, in the scriptures. Um, you, sometimes you have to look really hard for them. And sometimes they just like scream at you. And there's a few key words to look for. But one of the key words that you want to look for whenever you want to look for an actual principle in the scriptures, is you look for the places where it says, and thus we see, because whenever you see, and thus we see, that's one of Mormon's favorite ways of being able to say, I've told you a bunch of stuff. Now, here's the points that I was trying to teach you. And so you can actually go to those, those scriptures. I have them highlighted extra. I have them circled around with a pen. I have them standing out a lot on my page. Now, Christopher, you've seen my scriptures about how much I mark my scriptures. It's like I do my books. You've seen my books too. And, and, and I'm sure that send, <laughs> I'm sure they may send you into convulsions. Like, uh. But here it says, and thus we see that the Nephites did begin to dwindle in unbelief and to grow into wickedness and abominations, while the, Nephi, or the Lamanites began to grow exceedingly in the knowledge of their God. And they began to keep the statutes and commandments and to walk in truth and uprightness before him. 35. And thus we see that the Spirit of the Lord began to withdraw from the Nephites because of their wickedness and hardness. And thus we see the Lord began to pour out his Spirit upon the Lamanites because of their easiness and willingness to believe in his words. Now, Christopher, this is, this is where one of my favorite verses in all of the Book of Mormon. Because what's happened now is the Lamanites realize that the Gadianton robbers are in their land. They've got to get rid of them. You can't keep them around. You have to treat these social ills unless they're going to spread and take over. So the question is not that you have to deal with evil, but the question is, how do you deal with it? And you have to identify the root cause of it first. And so we find out in, in later chapters in 3rd Nephi about how the Nephites want to deal with the Gadianton robbers with Gid-Gadoni, and they want to go to war with them. But this is why I love this verse so much, because we learn so much about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it says in verse 37, Helaman 6, 37, And it came to pass that the Lamanites did hunt the band of robbers of Gadianton, and they did preach the word of God among the more wicked part of them, insomuch that this band of robbers was utterly destroyed from among the Lamanites. <laughs> I love it. I love this verse. I'm going to read it again. I love it so much. And it came to pass that the Lamanites did hunt the band of robbers of Gadianton. They hunted them down. They literally hunted them down. And once they found them, they did preach the word of God among the more wicked part. They, they didn't even go to the least, you know, the least wicked part of it. Like, you know, let's, let's like tip our toes and, and like start easy, you know? It's like, uh-uh. They hunted them down and they sought out the most wicked part of them. And they bore down the word of God among them. And they converted them. And thus, they were utterly destroyed. <laughs> Christopher, this one of the one of the main reasons I love this is because throughout the scriptures we always hear words about how God is going to destroy his enemies at the at the last days. 
Now, me personally, I'm starting to give up on the concept of violent desolation and scourging as the means by which God comes and destroys his enemies in the last day with fire and with all of that. Because when I look at the symbolism of fire and of burning and of taking over the wicked and of destroying the wicked, this is the verse that I go to. When I look at the love of God, when I look at the pure reconciliatory nature of God, and I see him coming in his power and glory. Now, we brought up power and glory back in a few podcasts ago because we learned that the glory of God, whenever we talk about the glory of God, we always usually talk about the glory of God as being some kind of you know, monumental lights and angels and discourses and, and just like, like God has arrived and everybody around the whole earth can see it. But we learned a few, a few episodes ago that the glory of God is his patience his mercy, his long-suffering, his gentleness, and his meekness, that that is the glory of God. And so when we see the glory of God coming again in his glory, and he's going to destroy his enemies, Christopher, I don't see death and destruction anymore. I see repentance and reconciliation, that the most wicked of the wicked, and that's why when I see scriptures like that the sins of the wicked will be shouted from the rooftops, you know, the, the walls and, you, and the sins will be shattered from the walls of the temple. I look at that as saying, wow, God loves his children so much that he is literally providing us to voice our trauma from sin. He's literally providing a way to do it by proxy. <laughs> like Cain, we don't voice our trauma. We don't voice the evils that we've done, but then God provides a way by proxy to do it for us so that then we can heal. We are a gospel of proxy. Man, we if we can redeem the dead by proxy, we can certainly shout the, the sins from the rooftop and do that by proxy. And look at all the ways that God is performing and creating and, and performing just to be able to reconcile with his children over the long game. That's where I see Satan is a master at the short game. God's got the long game down. And so when I see that, Christopher, man, it just always makes me happy. As I said, one of my favorite verses in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, God has all power to bring about his purposes. I couldn't agree with you more, Shiloh. It's clear that that God will destroy his enemies as the Lamanites did. But that doesn't mean what you think it means. Look what the Lamanites do. It's, It's the word of God. It's that flaming sword that purifies that destroys his enemies. It's conversion. It's purification. It's the Cain narrative. It's forgiveness. And forgiveness, of course, is preceded by by repentance, which of course means voicing that trauma. It's confession. That's God's plan. Now, I do have something to say about the text again. Okay, so you have... Mormon introduced the Gadianton robbers at the beginning of Helaman. But he doesn't actually really tell us anything about them until now. Now we see them come into the picture. How does that happen? I think this is important to understand because the Gadianton robbers are operating in the centers of power in metropolitan areas. You have huge civilizations that were hinted at that are that were told we don't even know a part of their stories. We have the people to the north. We have the Lamanites to the south. We have now long-distance travel 
from one end to the other, commerce. And that's where the Gadianton robbers come in, which is not to say anything against commerce. We know that we need to trade. We know that, that there's a lot of prosperity that comes from not having to make your own clothes and grow your own food when maybe one can make clothes and another can grow food and the two can trade. The problem happens when, like the Nephites, the poor aren't taken care of, the hungry aren't fed, the naked aren't clothed, and when love of money becomes such that the master mayhem principle of lives for profit comes into play. And that's the Gadianton robbers. And the Nephites, rather than rooting them out and destroying them, quote-unquote, by preaching the word of God to them, join them. They join in the secret combinations. They love money. And the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, the love of money. And so we see that the Nephites become a part of, or, or allow the Gadianton robbers to, to become a part of them, a part of their society at the highest levels of government and the centers of power and of commerce. And it will prove their downfall, just as it did among the Jaredites. And that's what Mormon is showing us. And I love that, you know, this really speaks to me. And, and I love that you brought up the, the Jaredite, that Gadianton is a, a Jaredite name, right? Because then we go back to Ether 8, when it talks about awakening to a sense of our awful situation, whereas we wake up to the fact that we live in a situation where this is our society. Now, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of evidences to show that this is going on today. And so what if it is? Do we go out and try to vote out vote out the evil influences? Do we try to go out and find out which one in commerce is in in cahoots with the one in politics and trying to rid those out? Is is that the standard that the Book of Mormon gives for us to fix these issues? No. How does the Book of Mormon really give us the solution that once we awaken to a sense of our awful situation that these kinds of people, just like you talk about, are in the highest echelons of government and are functioning and, and they're doing their thing? Whatever their thing is. The Getting word of power God. by gain. Yeah, it's just the it's just the word of God. Right? And we look with such it not disdain, but I don't know if it's a lack of faith or if it's just that we haven't cognitively realized exactly what it is that we've got. We don't understand God's power. The power of the word of God. His logos, his son, his argument, an aesthetic argument, an example to follow, a nonviolent example, with greater power than all the armies of the earth, to burn by a purifying fire the evil and the wickedness out of our hearts and to make us one with him. You know, when it says in the Doctrine and Covenants 121 about the priesthood. Now, we realize the priesthood, as John Taylor said, is the government of God. We also know from Joseph Smith that the priesthood is the power and authority by which God created and organized the cosmos. That the priesthood is that power, it's that authority, it's that which, it's that which God manifests himself by. And here it says that there in section 121, there is no power or influence that can or even ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood 
but only by persuasion, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness, by pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge our soul without hypocrisy and without guile, reproving betimes with sharpness, only when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth and afterwards an increase of love for him who we have reproved, lest he esteem us to be his enemy, that he may know that our faithfulness is stronger than the cords of death. Basically, that we know that we're not afraid of dying, that we know that our love for them is stronger than our fear of death. Let our bowels be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith. Let virtue garnish our thoughts unceasingly, and then our confidence will wax strong in the presence of God, and then the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon our soul as the dews from heaven. Now, we've talked about it a lot in these episodes and we've talked about priesthood a little bit, where we don't know what priesthood is. Really fundamentally, functionally, we don't. We have, we know it's the authority of God. We know that they're keys. We know that they are for giving blessings and for the ordinances of the priesthood, the saving ordinances that we talk about, like baptism and the temple ordinances. We also look at priesthood as though it is the function by which we have authority for the priesthood hierarchy and for the church structure. Okay, that's it. Now, if we're talking about the entirety of the entire persona of God by the power by which he created the cosmos, and that's really all we have to show for it is that we think we can give blessings from it, do some priesthood rites and rituals, and have the hierarchy of the church, and that's really it, we don't know what the priesthood is as a church. We have this power and authority that we know not what. And here... It's telling us that there's no power in it. This means that this is getting into the nature of God kind of talk. That if this is his true power and authority, then God will never do anything but by the power of persuasion, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering, kindness, love and feigned, pure knowledge, and all of these things. And then it says in verse 46 to, to conclude, the Holy Ghost shall be our constant companion and our scepter of unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. And our dominion shall be everlasting dominions, all without compulsory means. See, a lot of the times we see in the scriptures a very violent, just, just God, where God is doling out retributive justice. But yet here we know that there is no authority that God has, but it's by persuasion, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, love, all without compulsory means. Which means that those times in scripture that we see God going out and doing those things, says more about our projection of God than it does about God's true nature. It means more about how we see God than about how God really is. It means that we're projecting our own natural man onto God, as if God is doing those things. So that's kind of a topic opening up for a really big discussion for another day. But just like what you're talking about, Christopher, when God comes, I truly do just see a reconciliatory God anymore. These calamities and those, and those things, I don't know what they're going to look like. I don't know what they're going to be like. And I know that man has let himself into a place of war where that whole peace has been taken from the earth because of our actions. Now, sadly, as Latter-day Saints, I think as a culture, we believe mostly that we really don't have a part to play in really changing the narrative. That that Zion is going to come after Jesus comes, that 
The Sermon on the Mount is going to happen after Jesus is here because it's just the world is too wicked. The world is too wicked. It's too bad. It's too violent. It's too anything else. We can't really live the Sermon on the Mount. We, we really can't live those kinds of things now. But if that's true, then how pathetic is our God to leave us with such a poor ethic as the Sermon on the Mount that it's only powerful and it's only application can really only ever be lived when Jesus is living here personally to be the biggest bully, to vanquish the evil while the people practice the Sermon on the Mount. And if that's the case, we worship a pathetic God. But it's the very fact that the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are the power by which we vanquish evil that God has given us the most powerful tools of how to vanquish evil, and the fact is, is we justify and relegate them away. See, we haven't found and experienced the Sermon on the Mount and found it lacking. We have found it too difficult and abandoned with prejudice. And then we simply t tuck it away and say, we're not going to live these things because they're too difficult. They, they, they certainly don't apply to our day. These aren't going to happen until after Jesus comes. When in reality, Nephi and Lehi, Alma the Younger, the sons of Mosiah, they're the very kinds of people that bring about the very type of Zion situation. See, Christ is not going to come back when it's simply so bad that he has to, although it will be bad. Christ is going to come back when he has a Zion-type people to return to. That puts the pressure on us, as it were. And so in this, when I see what the Lamanites were able to do, they were curing their social ills and problems by bearing down pure testimony. They were truly converted. They stopped relying upon the arm of flesh. They stopped relying on building kingdoms and principalities of the earth. They stopped relying on building up kingdoms on the earth. They stopped trying to inherit those things. They built the kingdom of God and they lived into it. They stopped making excuses for themselves. They doubled down on their conversion with God and they went out and that was their success. They hunted down the band of Gideon and <laughs> the most wicked part of them and they converted them and in doing so, they destroyed their enemies because there were no more enemies. They loved them so much that they, <laughs> they literally lost their enemies. That for me is the message of the Book of Mormon war chapters, to show the futility of war, to show the fact that they spent 20 years, even the best of the best of the best of the people with Captain Moroni, who did the best that they could with what they had, but that their true solution and the most efficient, you know, we have this good, better, best spectrum that the war chapters are maybe good, maybe verging on better, maybe, I don't know. In my personal opinion, they're good. But that once we start getting up here into the Alma the Youngers, the Sons of Mosiah, the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and these Lamanites, that's where that spectrum, I don't like what Nephi and Lehi are doing. That's where that spectrum needle starts getting out of the good, maybe better, and starts getting into the best. Those are the things that we do to really bring about change. And the fact is, is we've relegated God away and his doctrine away so much to the power of what the Sermon on the Mount and missionary work and the power in the Word of God is, that we've almost completely neutered it from having any practical experience in our lives. Man attempts to vanquish evil by killing. God sends his son to die to vanquish evil. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus calls us his friends, and he tells us to follow him.
And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There it is again, missionary work. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me to death, which is unto resurrection, unto a new life, a life in Christ. Well, Christopher, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. And there's, there's so much to pull out of these chapters. These are some of my favorite, as I said. Helaman 6 there, 37, that is just that is just powerful stuff. So join us next week. Christopher, you'll be back again. I look forward to the next few chapters. We're going to get into some great stories and to see how the Nephite saga and the Lamanite saga unfold and to see how all of these things come about. It's going to be a great discussion. So thank you for joining us. And until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Christopher Hurtado, and I'm looking forward to it too, Shiloh. Awesome. Thank you guys for listening. 